Father in heaven, we're thankful for the blessings that you've given us through this week. We're thankful for the interactions that we've, we've had uh, with the people here at these meetings and, and on this campground. And we're asking now this morning, once again, that your Holy Spirit would, would guide us. Guide us as we share. Help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. To be sensitive to the principles that we need to bring through on your word. And bless, bless the people who are here to listen today. And may your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we wanted to close this series this week with God's word. God's word, not our word. The parent's guide. We've tried to make this relevant to what we face in culture today here in the United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, that freedom is going away. And it isn't even going away subtly, but it is going away. The freedom of speech is going away. Okay? People can say whatever they want to about Christianity. That's not hate speech. Okay? But if you say, and again, there's another law that's being passed in California right now. And if you say something there that someone else doesn't like, you can be immediately arrested for hate speech. Now, of course, you'll probably come out all right because we still do have a constitution, but that's the culture we live in. It will probably cost you money to get an attorney to take care of that, but this is God's word. And it, it, it isn't concerned about being politically correct or culturally correct. It is concerned about one thing, and that is to be, in this setting, the parent's guide. And we live in a society today that has begun to think consciously for some people, unconsciously for many, that God's word is sort of old-fashioned. You understand? It used to be that maybe just the Old Testament was old-fashioned and out of date, not the New Testament. But now it's just God's word is just kind of old and it's kind of irrelevant in the day that we live in. And while very few people would say that in the Seventh-day Adventist church, with saying it like I'm saying it right now, it may be the experience that many of us have had just drifting with the culture, unless we're making a conscious effort to go against the tide. Another cultural difference we're seeing is that there is no absolute truth. You have your truth, you can believe what you want to believe, you have your truth, you believe I have my truth, and really that's part of the educational system today in the public schools. So there is truth, there is an absolute truth, and it's only found in the Word of God, and that needs to be the course upon which we make our decisions and establish our families because it's the only safe course that there is. If there is no absolute truth, then you see the confusion and the chaos that's happening in, in the world we live in today. So that's why we want to emphasize how important it is. And we know for us, as young parents, and during that parenting process for many years, it's easy to pick up something that's an easy read, 
that has some humor, that kind of does stuff that kind of feels good and fits with life as we understand it and life as we live it. But we found that many of those things, while they had some good ideas in it, they really didn't have, I mean, uh, after a while, we, we, we found ourselves way out here somewhere. And it's like, whoa, how are we over here? Why is this happening? Why are we just a chaotic family? And we went back to the Word of God, and so we're going to open with this verse found in Isaiah 40, verse 8. It says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God shall stand forever. I know we know that. Do we believe that? And if we believe it, are we standing with the Word of God? You know, Ephesians 6 verse 1 says, and this is the Word of God, okay? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I could just as easily put at the end of that, thus saith the Lord. Would it be true? Mm -hmm. It's the Word of God. And yet today, (laughs) it's not really what happens in most of our parenting experience because of all the reasons that we have and because of how we were raised and because of the culture we live in and and you don't want to do something in Walmart. And we understand that, okay? But the bottom line is, is the children of this generation and not just this generation, but the children are being given a confusing message. Does the Word of God stand? Do my parents really believe that the Word of God is the standard of righteousness? Because, you know, I I had this, we had a family visiting us, and the, the ladies said to us, before lunch, let's take the children for a walk. And his son and my son were down in the sandbox. And so I went out, he came out the door with me, went on the back patio, and I said, Josiah, come. Within less than five seconds, Josiah parked his dump truck and was running up to the back patio. He called his son about four or five times. The last time when he called him, there was so much anger and volume in his voice that his son got up. Boom. You know why? Well, that man asked me. He said, why is your son standing here beside you and my son is just getting out of the sandbox? And I said, do you really want to know the truth? He said, yeah, that's why we're here. I said, because that's what you've trained your son to do. You've trained your son that you can call him three, four, five times, and it's only when you have and anger, and intensity, get up here, now. You hear that? You feel that? He's moving now. And he went, wow, you're right. That's what I've trained him to do. Because the word of God that children should obey their parents in the Lord was not really a standard that when you call your son, there is prompt and perfect obedience. That had been washed away in in confusion. 
So there's many principles, but we want to look today at the Bible from two perspectives. Because many parents, and ourselves included, how do we know how to set rules at home or boundaries in the home? What should be our expectation? This is a question most honest parents face, right? How many rules should we have? What should they look like? What should they incorporate? We went through this in our home, so we want to look at the rules, and we found that simply the Ten Commandments, they are all inclusive. It deals with every issue you face in your home. So our standard, our rules, our boundaries in our home were the Ten Commandments. What they were based off of. What they were based off of. We're going to go through that today, looking at the various commandments and just highlighting them and looking at ways that they practically apply to families and parents raising children. The other thing we look to the scriptures for is when we find ourselves in problems, issues, or, or not knowing what direction to go, then we go to the Word of God looking for guiding principles, you know, they say, the, the scriptures say, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So for every problem we face, mm-hmm. every problem, there are principles in the word of God that will help to clear our minds and enlighten our minds and give us direction on how to navigate through the issues or how to navigate through the problems. So this morning what we want to do is go to the Ten Commandments and talk about how they become the foundation of our home. So Genesis 20, verse 3 says, Thou shalt have how many other gods before me? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it's so easy for us in our parenting, and maybe we've never even thought of the Ten Commandments in our parenting, it's so easy for us to say, well... I mean, we're Seventh-day Adventists. We don't worship any other gods, right? We, don't, we certainly don't worship Baal, okay? We don't worship, you know, Ashtoreth. We don't worship these other gods. But what is the definition of worshiping another god? Now, I'm not going to give you my definition, but there's, there's one in Patriarchs and Prophets that is an inspired commentary on this commandment. It's page 305. Whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God, okay, so there's one of the conditions, tends to lessen our love for God, or to interfere with our service that is due Him, of that we have made a God. Patriarchs and Prophets, 305. Thank you, Exodus. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Exodus. <laughs> so that'll be on the tape. Thank you. Love the recording. Recording. Thank you for that. <clears throat> Whatever. That covers a lot of things, doesn't it? Anything that tends to lessen our love for God or to take from us the service we owe to him becomes a God. So that applies to us as parents as well as our children. So we have to then look at our lives as parents. Okay, what are those things that are really kind of overriding our interest in love for God, that are interfering with our service to God? And face those and deal with them. And same thing in our children's lives. You know that for many, especially men, it's their sports. They can, 
you can find it hard as, as, as men to get to church on time or you don't have time for a prayer meeting, you don't have time for any kind of devotions or worships with your family at home, but I tell you, when the games are on, you have time to watch them. Now, we're being extremely practical here today, but we have to kind of shake up our, our comfortability and we have to come to a realization that because we are so accustomed to going with the flow and following the patterns and the trends of culture, that we sometimes don't even recognize that the culture is overtaking us and becoming the, the direction and the way we want to go. So sports is a big thing, especially for men and boys. Um, another area for women. <laughs> Fashion. You, you're not going to give the women a break here. No, huh? can't get. Well, maybe you want to talk to the women. Fashion is one of those things. Should we look neat and orderly? Yes. Should we dress to represent the loveliness of the character of God? Yes. Should we dress with modesty? Yes. But many are following fashions, and it's it's amazing to me. I kind of have to smile because we've lived life long enough. Now we're seeing the, the fads of our youth coming back to the fads of today. And I think these young people think, wow, we're really cool because look at this, like a plaid pants and bell bottoms and all these things, or pants so tight or pants so baggy. I mean, if you just think about how you allow your children to dress following the trends of culture. Or how we dress ourselves. Or how we dress ourselves. We are helping, we are creating with them the... Uh, softening of the spirit, the, the softening of, of principle, and we're just teaching them that whatever we see is what we do. And in the area of dress, it's an area that really is exemplary of other areas that happen that may not be as visible, right? I mean, imagine 10 or 15 years ago, everybody wearing, oh, not everybody, the guys wearing pants that were so baggy they couldn't even keep them up, right, you know? We think, oh, how ridiculous. But somehow, somebody in the fashion world, through media and TV and movies, has made it popular. And then you see all these guys doing that. And then after everybody buys pants four sizes too big to trying to hold them up, then after three or four years, and now they can't sell as many more because everybody's closets are full of them, now they shift it. Now they're so tight that they can't hardly get the, you know, Get them all in. And women are the same way. And they're short. And this is, so with, with guys, fashion affects guys too. Right. And it, it's amazing to us. It's not amazing to us because we did it ourselves, but it's amazing to us where we live life now and seeking principle that there is a, there's actually a fashion style right now that's going on that very few people know, and it's really strong in the men's fashion, that was generated by some gay designers. How many of you knew that? Okay. Most of the fashion few. design for men is, is designed and, by gay designers. And they, they made the pants shorter, Tight, tighter, shorter. lower on the hips, okay? And very few men know why they changed. They just know that they have to change. No, you don't have to change. And I'm not a fashion model, so these pants that I have on right now, okay? How many years? No, really. It's true, how many years? Now, okay. I don't care if I'm in fashion, but I understand that it's tougher when you're young because when I was going to this school, 
Back in 1970s, I graduated in 1974, it mattered to me if I was following fashion, okay? You wanted to fit in. Yes, I, and, I, and I followed fashion in the pants that I wore, the bell-bottoms that I wore, okay, which have come back around again. But I didn't follow fashion in the tennis shoes that I wore, and I still don't follow fashion in tennis shoes. Now everybody's going to look at my tennis shoes. Anyway, <laughs> the point is that we don't have to be bondage to fashion. and We should at least have some understanding of why we're doing it. The reason the fashion designers are doing it is because they want to lead people in a direction that will make them money and will help set a trend, okay? That, that is why they do it, and they, they, they smile all the way to the bank, okay? And they wonder, and I've heard one fashion designer say, they wonder how far they can push society in their thoughtlessness, okay? How many people give any thought to it? Okay? And so fashion can be a god, and it's a big one for many people because while, while I know a lot of guys today who would not have been caught dead in pants that were two inches above their ankles two years ago, okay? <laughs> now they do it. Who motivated that? Because they suddenly changed their philosophy on wearing short pants? No, because they have always sought to fit in with society. And it's that simple. And we don't have time. We could just do a whole hour on this one topic, this one biblical. No other gods. <laughs> but we do, we do want to touch also on the, the electronic, the, the digital, the gadget age that we're in. Because for many people, young and old, those devices that you carry in your pocket that you can't hardly get out of your hand, those become, can become gods, ahead of God. You think about the amount of time you spend on just social media, the, the amount of time you spend on texting, the amount of time you spend in, in surfing the web or in any of the other apps or games or all these other things that, that are so conveniently there. And then you think about how much time you really spend searching God or praying and, and really studying God's word, and you see, wow, it's pretty, there's a pretty big gulf between those two amounts of time. Mm. So these are certainly tools that are useful, but they can't be controlling us. They can be useful in our Christian walk, but they can't be driving us that, we, that, are, that is drawing us away from Christ. So it's just an area of evaluation in our families. This is part of parenting in today's culture putting the Word of God as the standard, the foundation of our homes, that becomes the boundaries of our home. The second and third commandment we're going to kind of put down together, not bow down thyself to any idols, I'm paraphrasing, not taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We're going to kind of put those together. You know, many of us profess, claim, say, we are Bible-believing Christians, right? Are we really Bible-believing Christians, or do we deny God and do we deny the Word of God by how we live in our families? We're talking about behind closed doors, not in public, because in public most of us have enough you know, self-awareness that you just can't go out of control as an adult. In public, 
the way we go out of control as adults in our home, right? We, we can be nice to the grocery clerk, we can smile at people, we can be helpful, thoughtful, and all these things at work or wherever, but when we're home, oftentimes that's where the true character is revealed. And so if we are wanting to be the example to our children in the home of not having, of um, not, not taking, taking the name of the Lord our God in vain, then we need to live the life, we need to let Christ live his life through us in our homes, right? That we honor him and how we talk with our children, how we communicate with them, how we encourage them, how we seek them out. You know, the Bible, while it says children obey your parents in the Lord, it also says fathers, and I would say here mothers and dads, don't provoke your children to anger or to wrath. Many of us as parents don't really take that principle seriously. Therefore, we are not living and we are not honoring God, but in our actions, we are taking the name of the God in vain. So it has to do with our character development. Yeah, and so if we call ourselves Christians, and that is also a name that we can take in vain because it's not really the Christian life that many times we're exemplifying. Because I used to think taking the name of the Lord in vain was... Swearing. Swearing, okay? And that is... Mm -hmm. And I cringe when I hear people say it. But it's much broader than that. If we go around telling people and our neighbors know that we're Christians, like where we live, you know, we're a mile from our nearest neighbor and we don't do everything right, but around the valley now, because we've connected with a man who knows everybody, literally everybody in the community. And one day we, we took... Our, part of our family out to look at these these ponds that had been dug by our our neighbor Robbie and somebody drove by and saw a vehicle in there that he didn't recognize and he drove in there and he said do you have permission to be here and we said yes we do we were friends of Robbie's and we talked for a few minutes and he said are you preacher number one and I said what <laughs> He said, I think you're preacher number one. Robbie has talked about you and your family. And I said, preacher number one. He said, that's what he calls you, preacher number one. And then your associate, Paul, he calls him preacher number two. So our influence can either be a saver of life unto life, or it can be, are you the people that say you're Christians? And I hear you screaming at your kids all the time. I mean, that's taking the name of the Lord our God in vain, mm -hmm. the name Christians. Mm -hmm. You know, we reference to Patriarchs and Prophets 305 for the First Commandment, but that little excerpt is out of the chapter that talks very practically about the Ten Commandments, what they mean. And I always thought taking the name of the Lord in vain was simply swearing. I don't curse, I don't cuss, so I, you know, that's not an issue for me. I can move on to the next one. But I tell you, when we went back and we read that chapter, there was parts of taking the name of the Lord in vain that applied to me. Mm -hmm. So it's not just you know using foul language out there. It's much more about how we live life. So we encourage you to read that chapter in the context of this message today. It's Patriarchs and Prophets. I don't remember the exact title, but around 305, it's not where it starts, but back it up a little bit. You'll find the beginning of the chapter and read it through because it is quite enlightening of everything that's in there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How are we doing 
as parents in remembering the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the one day that God designs to bring our families together more closely than any other day with him. And what often ends up happening on Sabbath is that it's a day that we separate from our children and we end up getting involved in things many times, intentionally or unintentionally, that do not really honor and remember the Sabbath. So a very typical scenario, and we've been in it, and that is Sabbath, there's a fellowship meal at the church. And uh, the adults get their opportunity to, to talk and have some like-minded conversation. Is that a good thing? Yeah. Amen. But where are the children? Well, I can tell you where they are. From when I was one of them <laughs> at Jackson Church and where they are going to seminars all over the world today doing Sabbath presentations. They're always the same place in every church, whether it's the Eastern Bloc of Europe, whether it's Romania, pretty good in Romania actually, wherever it is, I'll tell you where the children are. They're out running with their friends until they do something and their parents get them in trouble. But there's no connectivity between them. And then the afternoon comes, and in, instead of having something planned for our young people that's just special and out in nature and doing things together, maybe mom and dad just need to take a nap because we're wiped out from the week. Now, there's nothing wrong with naps, but where are the children? Yeah, yeah we have a chair at home. It's called a lazy boy. You have Very well named. <laughs> And it is amazing you how know, lazy I become in that chair. <laughs> on, on Sabbath afternoon, you know, he sits down and he pulls the lever, feet pop up, it goes back. And there can be good intentions, but there's something about the comfortable chair that is, you know, very restful, to say the least. So I don't usually sit in that chair no, much anymore, do I, on no. Sabbath anyway? Yeah. Because I can have the best intentions, have the Word of God, and I can literally get about one verse into it. And I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, we're just highlighting these things. On our ministry website, we, you can go into um, the store. There's free downloads there. It's in the area under family. We have an entire uh, CD or, or audio series on Remember the Sabbath Day. It's four hours, four different one-hour presentations. Many of them have ideas. In, in the video area, you'll see a few that are actually filmed that you can get a, a feeling for. But we just we saw the blessing in our home from Sabbath being the worst day of the week for everybody because we're frazzled, we're tired, we're irritable, we're impatient. We're frantic. Moving into Sabbath. <laughs> and the children, I know when mom and dad get that way, the children are that way too. And then we move into Sabbath and it's, you don't do this and you got to do that and hurry up, we got to be on time for church and sit still in church and we're in the wrestling match in church and, oh, it's just like, when is this day ever going to be over so we can get back to life? But that isn't, that, that was our family, but that was the picture we needed to see, to see we had to adjust course because why should we expect our children to be desirous of coming to church and to be reverent and to want to learn and to be participatory if the rest of the week has no no pattern or no similarity to that one day. 
Three hours a week is not enough to make our children have a love and desire for Christ. Amen. It's a daily, daily, daily thing. And we found that when we started doing family worship at home, morning and evening, that was huge on how Sabbath looked. And then we also added, I added, because the girls were little and they were squirmy, and church, usually this, the sermon begins probably 11.20, 11.30 in most churches, but between all the preliminaries. So at that time, I did, that time during the week at home, I started having my girls sit on the couch just for quiet story time. So they got used to sitting. And I tell you, in one or two weeks, it was like the difference of day and night in the church. And we went from the back row to the front of the church. Yeah. And, and back row to make a quick escape. <laughs> back row, a quick escape to the front of the church because there was less distraction for our children in the front. And they were more focused on what was being said. And then we helped them to learn to listen. And, and any time they hear the word Jesus or God in the sermon, they could just look at us and we'd smile and nod our heads. And I mean, they were in tune. We just did a, a retreat, a family retreat in the United Kingdom in May. And there was a boy in that audience, eight years old, who brought my husband and me, because we both did different presentations, a two-page summary, eight years old, of the entire message. With uh, some drawings along the drawings, side. With drawings, the main points, the spelling. He, he's only eight years old. He's just, you know, doesn't have all those words. Phonetically, he could read the entire thing. And I, and I thanked him for it. I had him put his name on there. I said, that's a treasure. That is a treasure because those parents are helping that child tune in. And he was so focused. So we can start wherever we are. If they're already Amen. past three, four, and five, and they're eight, start at eight, right? Start at 12. Get the attention. So remember the Sabbath day. Oh, we're going to catch, we need to keep Because we're on, the, we're, we're on the, we're on the, the recording, so sorry. <laughs> Number five is honor thy father and thy mother. Okay? Is that important today? It, it is being lost in our culture. And we need, as parents, to bring back the meaning of that. Because the promise is, and it's the only promise like this in all of the Ten Commandments, that if we honor our father and mother, our days shall be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This is, this is not just speaking of here. <laughs> This is talking about the, the whole plan of salvation, mm -hmm. of the restored family for eternity. What a promise. We need to help our children understand this, not just because they need to have respect brought in and an understanding of authority. Those are all important. But this is a much bigger picture mm -hmm. of, of helping our young people understand because if they don't learn to honor us, the tragedy is they will not learn to honor and respect anybody that doesn't do it my way. Okay? And that's Their the way. epitome of yeah. self, yes. Again, from Patriarchs and Prophets, this little one sentence is from 308. Parents are entitled, entitled to a degree of love and respect. Notice what it says next. Due to no other person. So if we do not train our children to love and respect us, that means to honor, we are not, as my husband said, we are really helping them to learn to love and respect other people. But above everyone on earth in the human family, 
children's parents are due a level of respect more than any other people they come in contact with through their childhood and youth years. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean their spouse in the future, but this is a unique relationship that God is calling us to instill in our children. And it is everything we've been talking about this week on how we help motivate and train and encourage and cultivate this honor in the hearts of our children. So it is an all-inclusive um, responsibility we have as parents. I had a man ask me once, and it was not, he was not the only man or person that ever asked me this, but he said, so at what age, you know, do they have to continue? You know, when does that end? When they don't have to honor, is that, is that 18 or is that 21 or 25? I said, that commandment does not expire. Amen. There is no time at which we say, oh, okay, well, I can stop honoring my parents now. I mean, we took care of my dad with Alzheimer's. And, and that's a really sad disease for any of you that have ever had to deal with it. Because I watched my dad go from the man who was always the hero in my life, okay? And, and he remained the hero, and I was there, we were there at his, you know, in his dying moments, which I thank God for. But watching that disease take him down. But I never stopped honoring and respecting my dad. Amen. I did everything I could do to make his life a blessing in his later years because of all that I recognized that he had put into me. And I remember the day that my dad said to me, Tom, I, I hoped that I would never see this day when you have to bathe me. I mean, that's a poignant moment, okay? And, and I said to him, and I thank God that, that I could say this from my heart, I said, Dad, you have been with me from the time I could do nothing for myself. You have been with me through everything I've gone through in life, and you are at a place now that it is time for me to give back to you. You cannot do the things that you used to do. And I am privileged and proud to be able to do this for you. Never heard that ever again from him, okay? He knew, he understood, even though he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's, he understood, yes, this is the relationship of love, okay? We never stop honoring our parents. Now, I've had people say, so if my dad tells me I gotta buy a red car instead of a blue car, am I dishonoring him? No, okay? This is preference, okay? If your dad thinks a, a red car's got better resale than a blue car, we're not talking about that. This is not a parent telling a grown child, okay? This is an extreme, okay? And we know some parents today that there are extremes like this, and it is a control issue. It is not an honor issue. Okay? Separate the two. The Bible is very clear on that. But we never stop giving due respect and honor to our parents. And true love gives true freedom. So, and then we see that exemplified in the scripture. We see that through the life and sacrifice of Christ. So that love that's there gives us the freedom to choose. So we need to allow our children 
choices and we teach them as they grow older. When they're little, we give them things that are all good choices to pick from. So they develop how to make choices. But as they get older, they get more and more independence. But it never, it never crosses the line to dishonor us, okay, as their parents. So that's, that's part, just a little uh, sampling of that commandment. The next commandment says, thou shalt not kill. Again, we think of it in the context of what? Taking the life, no more life, it's over. Murder, whatever. If we look at the inspired commentary on this verse, it's any act where hatred, anger, revenge, or selfish neglect is part of what's happening, is the precursor to murder. And we're told in inspiration, should time last long enough, if these things are not dealt with, that time lasts long enough, that would be the natural result. We have the perfect example at the beginning with Cain and Abel. Cain's will was crossed. Abel did, you know, was honoring and followed, followed the guidance of his parents, honored God with what God said for the sacrifice. Cain did part of it, but kind of wanted to do it his way, not in an honorable way, but his way, the independent spirit. And there came a point because of what was happening in his heart that in the moment of time when his sacrifice was denied and his brother's was accepted, that he, was, he got so wroth with his brother. I don't think this was planned out. It was in the moment of haste, in the moment of anger, in the moment of passion that he, he slew his brother. So in our homes, when we see angry words, you know, children, you know, hitting their brother, hitting their mom, hitting their siblings, hitting their dad, hitting anybody. I mean, I am shocked to see that most parents do not tell their children, no, this is not acceptable. All they do is try to protect themselves. Uh-uh. Our children need to know that this behavior is not acceptable. This is not what we do, whether you are Christian or not, this is not acceptable. If we do not draw a clear line here, which is what the scripture is doing here, then we are preparing our children to feel it is their right to use any form of physical aggression in any circumstance that they deem it is necessary. And that's why you see more and more aggression. We've had parents call us who are terrified, physically afraid of their seven-year-old child because they are so violently out of control because we have not helped our children see this is not acceptable. No, we, we not only stop them, you may not do that. But we don't just stop the wrong. We have to go back and cultivate the good. Mm -hmm. And so we stop the, the aggression, because children, when they're little, and our girls did it, and I, prob I, I probably, no, I can now, had a flashback, a remembrance of when I got angry with one of my, I had two older brothers, of course, I couldn't, you know, be more physical than they could, but in a moment of anger at one of them, I just punched him because I was upset with them. And that was very rare in our home, and, and, but we saw the same thing and, and with our children. You know, they're pushing each other, they scratch, they pull hair, they bite, whatever your child does. These are all forms of anger that lead to, that, that are actually breaking the commandment at the root level, right? So we talked about that, okay, why are we doing this? How should we be treating the other person? Would we like them to treat us that way? And so we, we, we sit down, we talk about it, and then we say, how now can you do it differently? And we actually role play a better response. 
And if they feel irritated with their sibling, come and tell mommy, don't take action yourself. Come tell daddy, don't, don't react yourself, right? If something is bothering you so bad and you're starting to get that feeling and you can't manage it at that level with your sibling, come and tell one of us and we will come in and we will help deal with the situation. Most of the times, we as parents, and this often happens, we have high expectations of the older siblings. That's right. Because they are number one. They have more time of teaching and training, and, yeah. and they have more understanding. They're more mature, and they're more grown up, and they're more responsible. And then the little one comes along, maybe five or six <laughs> years younger, and they get away with a lot, including physical out outbursts. Oh, you just have to be patient with a honey. Yes. You and just have to share. Oh, he's taking all my toys. No, you just have to share. Just, you know, and so so don't if, take his toys. <laughs> if the old, that's under ceiling, but yeah. if the older one comes back and tries to do something, no, you, you, sh you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know, you can't, you can't force them, you can't do this, you can't do that. So the laws in the home need to be equitable. If you don't want the older one smashing the other one, then you can't let the little one smack the older one, right? This is just reality in our homes. So it's we, equity. In, it's equity in our right. homes. Thank you. Yeah, so, um, go ahead. Okay, the seventh. Uh, oh, sorry, I was, I was looking here. Yes, I kind of squeezed it in there. We consolidated the notes, so it's kind of more bulleted points. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. We think that's only re relating to adults. It isn't. Any act that brings in impure thoughts, any act that has impure thoughts, uh, expression is the precursor to this final adultery. It's, it's, it's the mental. It's the mental. It's what leads to that, okay? So this has to deal with self-abuse. You know that term? Modern term is masturbation. Okay. Culturally, it's called normal. But not in God's word. But not in God's word. That's right. So when we're talking about not committing adultery, we have to back it up to the precursors or the things that lead into that kind of behavior as people get older. And do you know, I'm just looking here at the young years here, that, that the most active group's sexuality are not adults? It's not even teens, it's preteens, it's tweens. Right now, that's the most active sexually. In the culture of America. Hands down. So don't think that this is something that we'll talk about when they get older. This is stuff that's already happening in the minds of children at a young age, and then it's happening before moms and dads even know what's happening. It's happening in every denomination across America, and the problem's actually worse in Christianity in general than it is in the world. That's a little shocking, isn't it? Statistically, it's higher. So we have to, you know, when we share this message about God's Word, the Parent's Guide, we're, we're bringing some very well-known verses that we all agree to and say, praise the Lord, you know, this is God's law, but we're making it in practically, very practical in the parenting realm. And I just want to say one other thing that's, that's on the other side of this, because we do a lot of marriage counseling, and we've had many people over the years come to us, many people saying something like this. My husband is involved in pornography and masturbation. 
And according to Jesus, when he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, and if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart already. So do I not have biblical grounds to divorce my husband? And we give a resounding no. You do not have grounds. I want to make that very clear, okay? Jesus said, except for fornication, he clarified himself. Not that he needed to clarify himself, because there was, no, there was nothing counterproductive to what he said about the thoughts, because that is still sin in the mind. Mm-hmm. But it is not grounds for divorce. He made it very clear there's only one thing that gives you the grounds for divorce, and that is fornication. Not in the mind, in the reality. So he made that very clear in Matthew 19. So I'm only throwing that out there because everywhere we speak about this commandment, we know that there there are going to be a small percentage of people who are looking for an escape using the spirituality of the law in place of the actual committing of that action. And there's a difference. And, you know, adultery, and probably the statistically it's 3.6 women in the, in the United States have already been abused. Okay, so 3.6 women out of every, what is it? Did I get that statistic right? Yeah. Basically, that, 30, 30 to 33% of women, so we just looked at this congregation. Have had some kind of sexual abuse, abuse at some point. Prior to their adult life. Yes. Much, so, yeah, much, much more than, yes. than men. But again, it's growing in the men's side, unfortunately, too. Okay, number eight, thou shalt not steal. Oh, well, that's an easy one, right? <laughs> no, it isn't. We began to teach our children at a very young age that it is inappropriate for you, Emily, to go and take your sister's dolly clothes just because you want her clothes on your dolly without asking permission. That is stealing. When you take something that belongs to someone else without permission, you are stealing. Oh, well, it's just temporary stealing. No, it's not temporary stealing. It is, the intention is to take something without permission. And it's very amazing that in the culture that we live in today, and I I use this one example, (laughs) there was this child on the plane, and he was coming down the aisle, sitting in the aisle seat, he's coming down the aisle, and he is stopping off at ladies' purses. And he is digging into ladies' purses. And I was... Shocked. It takes a lot to shock me nowadays. I was shocked to see how many women would not speak to him because they didn't want to cross his will. He's not their child. Not their child. A hands off, that kid. And I was amazed until he got to my wife. (laughs) She was not afraid to cross his will. (laughs) And she did cross his will. And he put up a fuss. And his mother came to his rescue. And she said... Yeah, wow, who said that? Wow. He's, he's not going to harm anything. He's not going to take it from him. He just wants to see what you have. Like, <laughs> Don't you love real examples? I mean, they're, they're better than fiction sometimes, okay? 
<laughs> it, it, it does seem shocking, doesn't it? I mean, are we that are we that degenerate as a culture that we don't have just basic respect for other people? But it is going away quickly. On all levels. On all levels. And every one of these commandments we've touched on today, we see that it is, we're on a very slippery slope down very, very quickly. And in the process, it makes, when we go back to the Word of God, it makes it look like, is that, is, I mean, isn't that a little extreme or old-fashioned or out of date or too, too severe? It's not. It's because of where we are. So in the, this area of stealing, like my husband said, we don't use the words, you know, you're stealing from your sister. We soften it. You know, that doesn't belong to you. It's true, it doesn't belong to you. But we sat down with our children when they were young, and we said, we went through the commandments with them. What does it mean? Taking something without permission. That means if your bike has a flat tire, you can't jump on your brother's bike and go for a ride. You never asked him, what are you doing? Oh, I'm bar. No, you're stealing. If you do it without permission, you are taking something without consent. You are stealing. We watered down. I'm borrowing it. I'm just, just having, you know, I'm only going to go. They let me write it yesterday. We're, this we share. We, we think of all kind of things. It doesn't stop with the little things. It grows and grows and grows. And this, this is why, and we use this example, this is why children can come up to the front of the church, unabashedly, and start banging on the piano at six and seven years old. Because no one in their home has taught them that when this belongs well, to someone else, when it belongs to someone else, you don't have the right to go and sit down and start banging on that piano. Now, you don't have the right to bang on the piano, even if you ask permission, but at least you need to ask permission because it's somebody else's property. And this is almost lost in, in our society today. I had such an ingrainment, it was so ingrained in me, my mother did not allow any of us to, to get in her purse. Okay? We could never get in my mom's purse. And it was so ingrained in me that when we got married, I, I didn't even get in her purse. Okay? <laughs> Because that was just ingrained in me. You don't get in a woman's purse. Now, that may sound old-fashioned, but I think it, it bears the principle that if, if I... Now, now I get in your purse, don't I? But, Occasionally. Yeah, but it's only because... Okay, well, one, right? So it's not... That's right. I'm carrying stuff for you as well as for me, but it used to be, no, it's in my purse. Go ahead and get it out, you know? But to this day, he just wouldn't go pick up my purse and rummage through it. He would only go with the intention of getting something there that he knew I put in there that he needed that I was carrying for him, okay? A pen, chapstick, whatever it is, you know, honey, it's in my purse. So, you know, it, these are examples that, you know, again, can seem a bit far-fetched, but in reality, we've gone so far the other way that we, we start seeing that normal behavior seems abnormal, right? right. And abnormal behavior becomes normal. So... Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. This is a big one. And this is one that I think we generally make a little bit more practical than some of the others. We just know that it is inappropriate to lie, okay? But not in the society we live in, okay? 
And, and I, have to, I have to be honest. I don't have to be honest, but I choose to be honest because it helps illustrate, okay? I used to be the biggest jokester you can imagine. Nobody who knows me today would believe that, okay? I still loved a good laugh. I love natural humor, but I do not make jokes just to get a laugh, okay? Because it's guile. And I cannot picture no Christ ever just telling somebody a lie and just saying, just kidding, Peter. You know, I'm a little like you. You know, I'm just kidding. No, that's not what Peter needed. Jesus did not joke with people, okay? And I used to be a huge jokester, and I just praise God that early in our marriage and early in our parenting situation, God opened my eyes to that. Because when, when I would say, I'm just kidding, what's the other word for that? Yeah, I'm, thank you, I'm, I'm just lying. But it's almost hard to say, isn't it? Because we've become so accustomed to saying, I'm just joking, I'm just kidding. I'm just lying to you, right? I'm just lying to you. Isn't that funny? It's not funny. <laughs> and we don't even like to use the word in the culture we live in today. And here's the problem, is that our children mirror us. That's right. They copy us, right? So when now they've done something and we come to them, they're going to look for a way out, you know? They're going to look for an escape route. And so they'll tell us a partial truth. They'll tell us what somebody else did. They'll always try to present their innocence. They may even, say, you know, in their mind, they tell a direct lie, and then in their mind they go away with, I'm just kidding, Daddy, you know, I'm just kidding, Daddy. I mean, that's what they're saying themselves because they're trying to soften conscience. We can't soften the conscience. We have to be the example of the truth, have expectations of truth and honesty in our home, and then expect that and help our children to develop that. Um, There's a, an example that that we often use because it happened in our home. And it happens, I, I want to say it happens because we as parents have excused our way of softening things. So the phone rings yes. and our oldest daughter answers the phone, you know, nine or 10 years old. And she says, you know, it's Mrs. Smith. And Elaine goes, oh no. Then she gets on the phone, and how does she talk to Mrs. Smith? Oh, it's so nice to hear from you. And then at the end of the conversation, thank you so much for calling. Have a nice day. Okay, I've done it. We've done it as parents. And here, here's Allison going, huh. This is the reaction. And then when mom or dad gets off the phone, it's like, I am so tired of that woman calling all the time. And so the child hears what? It's a lie. So the children, you know, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto us. So children are very straightforward. So they say to us, so why don't you just tell Mrs. Smith the truth? But many times they don't say that to us. They just learn how to be like mom and dad. They just learn because we model it for them. It, this is bearing false Witness. We are witnesses all the time. Like it or not, no man is an island. Mm -hmm. So how we witness the truth or the lack of the truth, or and I'm sure no one in here has ever told a white lie. And you try to get somebody to, to define a white lie, it's pretty hard to do, isn't it? 
A lie is a lie. So is a white lie a little bit better lie? Maybe it's a plain, you know, it's, it's white collar lying versus blue collar lying. There, there is no such thing as a white lie. And we have to tell ourselves the truth and help our children see the truth. Yeah. Okay, there's so much. We just encourage you to go back to read that chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets because it really kind of takes the blinders off you and just kind of pops it out there in, in full color what, this, what the Lord is talking about through this. The last one we're going to touch on is thou shalt not covet. Covet is wanting something that somebody else has so that you can't, you just can't have rest because they got a new bike and I don't have it. I wish I had their bike. And we, we start to look for ways, and actually it's covetousness inbred, you know, brewing in the heart that leads to stealing, right? To taking without permission. So coveting, you know, if, if one of your children gets something because of a good job done, and we see this very, very well exemplified in the educational arena, in the recreational arena. You've got a team of kids doing a sport, and two or three kids have done exceptionally well, but everybody gets the reward. Why? Because you don't want them to feel bad because, I mean, they might not have shown up to any of the practices and only hit the ball once, and they get the same reward as somebody who's been there to every practice and all this because of covetousness. We don't want our children to be offended that they didn't get the honor that somebody else did. Everybody has to have the same, regardless if you have done anything to earn it. Covetousness leads to that kind of behavior that we see is very prominent in the culture we live in today, which is giving our children a wrong message. It means that they have an entitlement to anything they want. That's the entitlement mentality right there. And That's the root of it. We should say, okay, the reason why they got the honor, the reason why they got the ribbon, the reason why they got rewarded is because they chose to work hard and be diligent and to do their best and to achieve, and they, they practice and they have the skills, and therefore they earned it, right? So covetousness wants something that doesn't belong to us without ever wanting to do anything to earn it or to, to properly receive it. So that's the Ten Commandments in practical life in parenting, okay? And, and, and just put very simply, okay? But you need to go back and now personalize this for your family for your family dynamics, for your children's personalities, for what can mom and dad do to better exemplify by precept and example how we arrive at the principles for the standard of life in our homes. So we're going to close uh, with prayer now, and then we're going to have our short question and answer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your law the law of liberty, gives us the highest freedom. The law of love keeps us connected with you. Help us to see it through better eyes. Help us to experience it through honest choices. And help us to share it with our children as a heritage to them. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.